0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it. Hello. In 1871, an expedition entered the territory now encompassed by Yellowstone National Park. Led by a doctor and self-taught university, University of Pennsylvania geologist Ferdinand van de Veer Hayden. It was to be the first scientific expedition into that mysterious place. But it was, says my guest Megan Kate Nelson, part of a larger struggle over the expansion of federal power during Reconstruction. Hayden would be one of the three men who would strive for control of Yellowstone and its surrounding territory. The others were Jay Cook, a Philadelphia investment banker raising capital for the Northern Pacific Railroad, and a Lakota leader known to English speakers as Sitting Bull, who was determined to stop the building of the Northern Pacific. These are just some of the protagonists of Nelson's new book, Saving Yellowstone, Exploration and Preservation in Reconstruction America. Megan Kate Nelson is a writer and historian living in Massachusetts. She is author of at least four books and was previously on Historically Thinking in episode 29, discussing her book, Ruin Nation. We were all so young then. Megan Kate Nelson, welcome back at long last to Historically Thinking.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me back. I know, I can't believe we skipped so much time. It's been... Probably eight years.
0: Yes, and you wrote like three books since
1: we've chatted.
0: No, you've written no, you've written only one book since then. Two, two books.
1: Yeah, 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 two
0: books. Yeah, two books. Two books. Yes. Ruin Then three.
1: Well, there was Ruination, Nation. Three cornered War. And
0: now Yellowstone. Have I, and now I,
1: saving Yellowstone. Okay,
0: so I only I.
1: That's it. No. I any anymore in between. I
0: missed. I missed so you're not Adrian Goldsworthy, or you know any. Uh, you know it is. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you haven't. You're not writing a yeah. book a year.
1: No, I am not uh, Jill Lepore esque in my productive capacity, and I did not write any. Yeah, yeah, I I didn't uh, write anything under a pseudonym either.
0: Well, speak for yourself. Um, Okay, so uh, for the person from Mars, yes, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. How the hell would I describe Yellowstone? (laughs) <laughs> and then I started doing it in various levels and you're the environmental historian. So I think you can see where I'm going there. How do you describe Yellowstone to someone who knows nothing? Obviously not a German who wants to get a recreational vehicle and travel around the West and go to Yellowstone, but how do you describe it?
1: I usually describe it as a 2.2 2 million acre landscape of hydrothermal, hydrothermal, And geologic features uh, that sits atop a caldera or what we might also call a super volcano in northwestern Wyoming. Um, It is the heart of the uh, greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which is one of the largest temperate intact temperate zone ecosystems in the world, uh, partly due to the 1872 Yellowstone Act, uh, which preserved it as a national park. I would also say that it, it was also a hunting ground and thoroughfare and campsite for numerous indigenous peoples uh, before any white person ever stepped into it. Uh, and when white trappers and scouts actually entered Yellowstone and came back and told the story of its geysers and mud pots and amazing waterfalls and canyons, no one believed them. Uh, only two amateur outfits investigated Yellowstone by 1871 uh, so at that moment it was really one of the last unmapped places in the continental United States
0: which is amazing since it's one of the craziest
1: yes I mean it really
0: <laughs> it really you begin to understand like how H Rider Haggard stories were plausible in the late 19th century when you've got this unmapped place which is also, incredible. So I guess I was thinking about this, that the volcanism leads to everything else, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the fact that it's a super volcano that is waiting to kill us all, well, which is actually, I'll put, show, put that in the show notes, um, is uh, the reason why there's the weird geological features. That's why the Canyon of the Yellowstone, well, all those things come out of that. Is that. Would that be right, geologically speaking?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. It's a very active volcanic zone. And so you know, over millions of years, this has created in one part of the park these geo giant geothermal basins, the largest in the world by far. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, also part of that kind of within that caldera rim is Yellowstone Lake, uh, which is. one of the largest high elevation freshwater lakes uh, on the continent. Uh, And then also the the upper and lower falls of the Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, which uh, formed because they're sort of at the edge of this geological feature. And the Yellowstone River was able to cut a passage and then a ledge uh, over, again, millions and millions of years. So this is just a a playground for geologists, right? And for anyone seeking to understand what's going on uh, under the surface of the earth. And really at this point, Hayden really didn't know and geologists and scientists really didn't know What was happening?
0: Right, it Uh, comes. You you convey that beautifully. Is that they're like, I don't know why this is happening, but it's (laughs) happening.
1: (laughs) They had theories, and they knew about volcanoes, obviously, and they knew about you know molten uh, chambers underneath the ground, but they really didn't have a sense of. Everything that we know now, you know, they didn't know about plate tectonics. They didn't, you know, have a full sense of the dynamics underneath the surface of the Earth. And it's really hard to discover those things because how how can you put our technology down there uh, yeah. into steaming cauldrons? I mean, they get destroyed. Yeah. I, it's, it's
0: what's even more interesting. I had not realized that they really had no standard of comparison. So as you point out, there's Iceland. And there's New Zealand, but Yellowstone was like the third place where people had seen geysers. But then they saw lots of them. So, yes. so, and then it makes sense that everyone would think that Hugh Glass or whoever or was a Coulter or any of those tra- trappers who, who had culture who yeah. who, had, who had who had seen it. Of course, they wouldn't believe them. I mean, because oh. this because no one had really seen stuff like that before. It's this was like fantastical.
1: Exactly, and to see it on such a scale too, and especially. You know, people knew about the geysers, but the mud pots were something new. These kind of boiling mud cauldrons no one had ever really seen before. Uh, and in such profusion and kind of coming upon them. Um, have you been to Yellowstone? No. That, so when you go, what's fascinating is, you know, that you'll be driving along the edge of Yellowstone Lake. And it looks like a, a you know, a beautiful high elevation, high elevation, you know, mountain lake. And then suddenly, there will be steam coming up from the, <laughs> you know, the shore because there's a geothermal feature there, and, and it is just these these expedition members and anyone who was moving through it in this period, and even now as a tourist, you come upon these places really suddenly, mm-hmm. and these amazing features just seem to kind of emerge out of the earth, and the, and it is a very dynamic system. There's there's one route that we took in September when we were traveling through the park. Uh, it's kind of right where the Yellowstone river comes out and enters the Hayden Valley uh, before it goes on um, further northward. And there's a whole series of mud pots there. It's actually where Hayden fell through the surface right. and yeah. scalded yeah. his legs. Um, and we went up on this, on this pathway where you climb back up into the the mountains and there are, you know, geothermal features kind of up on inclines in these Hills you go back, there's an acid lake, which looks like staying away from that situation. And then you go to this feature and the sign in front of it says that it had just opened up like 15 years ago. Huh. And it is boiling and hissing and throwing mud all over the place. And, and I mean, I can't even imagine what it must have been like if you would have been there at that moment right. where it opened up out of the earth. And, and that's the thing about that part of Yellowstone is that things are happening under your feet. The earth is alive. Constantly. The earth is alive and you are made very aware of how the earth is alive. And so it's, it is sublime beauty, but it is also, as you say, like weird and it's strange and it's very threatening, which is kind of terrifying,
0: which is very much of, you know, like, that's a very 18th century way of thinking about nature anyway. I'm, I'm comfortable with that. The Victorians were already, uh-huh. Victorians already turned into a precious moment. But, you know, in the 18th century, no one wants to go to the Alps, as I always tell students. But the, the mountains are dangerous. You, you, people die there. Who wants to go to an Alp? You know, it's a terrible place. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Yellowstone still has that, it has, it has the ability to awe us, even us 21st century people in the way that, say, the Blue Ridge no longer have, but did in the 18th century. You know, it's, which is
1: right. And I think I think that's part of the explanation for why uh, Congress saved it as the nation's first national park. I mean, we already had, we already knew about Niagara, mm-hmm. Natural Bridge. You know, a lot of the places that are national parks now had already been mapped uh, and surveyed and people knew about them. You know, obviously Yosemite in 1864 had been given over to the state of California, but Congress chose to to make Yellowstone its first national park. And I think it's precisely because it was so weird and so unique Mm -hmm. and they knew it was unique in all the world. And, you know, at this moment in 1871, 72, Americans are really searching for proof of the nation's exceptional nature Mm -hmm. and, Yellowstone seemed to prove that for them.
0: Well that that's a lovely segue but we'll, we should get back to that. One more a couple more questions about the environment. When I was a kid and obsessively reading about the Lakota and Yellowstone and stuff like that. The Mountain of Glass. I believe Jim Bridger told a tall tale about uh-huh. the Mountain of Glass. That's a, a obsidian yeah. obsidian feature. Obsidian cliffs. Yeah, obsidian cliffs. Yes. Um
1: yes, and it is there and you can go see it. Uh, you cannot climb it, right. obviously. Uh, they don't allow you to get anywhere near it. But yeah, that used to be one of the reasons that indigenous peoples, they, they moved through this area for lots of different reasons. Um, but one of the reasons was to kind of harvest obsidian cliff. Which is my next uh, question. I,
0: I've since become, you know, very. I'm very obsessed especially interested in the Mississippian culture and Cahokia. Mm-hmm. And in Cahokia, they found pieces of obsidian that could only come from that cliff. So we've got Yellowstone 700, 800 years ago as already being a, a a source of trade of transcontinental trade. So Yellowstone's been at the center of the, that's been a human story there for a very long time.
1: Absolutely. And, and you can see why too, because the Hayden really believed that, Uh, Yellowstone was what he called the heart of the continent. Uh And one of the reasons he thought that is because out of it came multiple rivers Uh that fed into the Missouri and the Mississippi and then the Columbia and then the Colorado and the Gulf. And he really thought that this place, this central place was really the heartbeat, right. Um, In terms of bringing people together and, and indigenous peoples were we're following those rivers and pounding out those trails and establishing, as you said, these massive trade networks. And you know, I love an example like that because it does show us that Indigenous peoples were in contact with one another uh, for various reasons—for um, trade, for warfare, for alliances—and uh, objects moved all over the continent um, through that trade network, uh, and Yellowstone was a part of that. So.
0: Um- And just to, just also to clarify, so the Lakota tells story about the Black Hills. Um, Yes. The Arikara probably have a very different story about the Black Hills, but let's not get into that. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone has their stories. The French believe that the, used to believe that oil came from heaven to anoint the Kings of France. You know, and the Athenians believe that Hephaestus almost raped Athena and their first King of Athens came from the earth as a result of that. Um, People have their stories. Do do did did any group of indigenous people tell their story about Yellowstone? Because it seems the kind of place that you would want to associate origin stories with, the way that you would the Acropolis or Paris or something like that, or the Black Hills.
1: I don't think that Yellowstone itself was a kind of root place in any origin stories. I mean, certainly uh, Shoshone and Bannock peoples and Crow peoples were the ones who were living kind of closer Mm -hmm. and closest to the margins of Yellowstone. Uh, They definitely told stories though, Mm -hmm. and they knew about it. They knew uh, about all of the features in uh, the basin's interior. And of course, no one believed them, just like they didn't believe Coulter and Jim Bridger and oh. <laughs> and scouts, any scouts or traders who were uh, trappers who were moving through that region, uh, because it just seemed so completely insane um, uh, but yes I mean this place was integrated into multiple stories as as landscapes often are and multiple histories where indigenous peoples are you know telling the story of how they came to be and how they came
0: to so be in this place. but to, to get back at this um, we erased indigenous people from Yellowstone we'll talk about that the paint the, from the very beginning and and I remember the stories that you know natives did not want to go there because it was it was bad. Right. Right. Um,
1: yeah. That's a, that's a story that park officials made. Park up.
0: Park officials made that story basically. up. Yeah. Um, yeah. At the same time, was it, was it the cradle of indigenous cultures? What I'm, I'm getting at in the way that I look at the black Hills and say one way or the other, mm-hmm. at least a, a indigenous people says this was the cradle of my culture that doesn't seem to have been the case. I'm curious. I'm just curious no, about that. That
1: was not the case. Yeah. That was not the case. And and this is what makes, I think Yellowstone quite interesting because it was really a shared space. Yeah. It was a, a thoroughfare. It was a crossroads there. When Hayden arrived, there were, he was following indigenous trails, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, And we still follow them. Tourists still follow them. Many of the roads mm-hmm. uh, that were built in Yellowstone for tourist infrastructure followed these trails. So what was What also was important about that is that Yellowstone itself, the the, the basin we now know of as Yellowstone National Park, um, it was not part of any negotiated treaty between the U.S. and any indigenous peoples before eighteen seventy one. So it was technically, you know, by the U.S. legal construct of the of the Indian Treaty, was not claimed. Uh, As part of those reservation lands uh, and never was. So, because again, it was a communal space. Mm -hmm. uh, And so, no one, there was no one indigenous group living within Yellowstone and claiming it as their own, except for a small band of mountain Shoshone, Mm -hmm. uh, the Tudodeca, who were sheep herders who lived in the mountains, Uh, but they were a very small group um and and basically lived there uh into the the national park years uh a little bit but uh but no it did not yellowstone was not the kind of heart of that tale in the same way uh that Hesapa the Black Hills is for the Lakota mm-hmm. uh, and other landscapes are for other indigenous groups so back to the what i the
0: nice segue that you such a pro. You, you craft it, and I stepped all over it. <laughs> um, this is related to American exceptionalism in 1870, 1872. Why? As a trained historian and writer, why in the world would Americans want to feel exceptional in 1870
1: and 1872? Well, <laughs> I, I don't know. Right. Yeah. So during the Civil War, oh, you know, right. the country... Yeah. Torn apart. Um, During Reconstruction, the federal government is trying to bring the former Confederate states back into uh, the Union to see their representatives, um, to kind of reunite politically. That doesn't happen until 1870. So this is sort of the same moment where Hayden is starting to think about going to Yellowstone. Uh, Americans are thinking about their country as united once again. Uh, during the civil war, the federal government had expanded considerably uh, in order to provide for the armies and to provide for the people uh, during the civil war. And then the early years of reconstruction, they had passed the 13th and the 14th and the 15th amendments, uh, basically providing constitutional rights for citizens uh, and promising to defend those rights. And so this, this is where we are in 1871, 72. The, the economy is still fairly unstable. The political scene is just kind of getting back uh, to some kind of stability, um, but white Southerners are resisting black citizenship rights in the South. And we have the rise of the KKK in 68 and afterward. So there's still a lot of turbulence, but the, the federal government is trying to exert its power in the South and in the West. And this is part of a larger effort of, of political unity. And then there's the question of cultural unity, sort of how, how do Americans start to think of themselves as Americans again, right? And so they were doing this in a lot of, of different kinds of ways. There's um, a whole magazine mania. So Scribner's Monthly, which is an important part of the story of Yellowstone, is founded in 1873. It's a middle-class magazine. It published, you know, four different accounts of Yellowstone expeditions in its first two years of publication. Um, and it was meant to really appeal to middle-class readers and to appeal to their patriotism. Mm-hmm and give them a sense that the country was not lost, right, after this horrible fracture of the Civil War and then this continually kind of chaotic time during Reconstruction. So that's really the context in which Hayden is lobbying Congress for money to go to Yellowstone. Um, Congress is also simultaneously passing a writer to an Indian, approach, Indian appropriations bill, doing away with treaty making entirely uh, in 1871. So no longer recognizing native sovereignty. Um, this is part of their push to control the West as much as the South. Uh, and I think this is what we we learn when we look at Reconstruction from Yellowstone, right? Um, in the Three-Cornered War, I was looking at the Civil War from the Southwest, this really kind of unexpected place. And I think when we look at, at reconstruction from Yellowstone, another unexpected place, we see that this federal effort of expansion and control uh, and unification is actually continental. Mm-hmm. It is nationwide. And it's continuing? Uh, when really, yeah, we usually think of it as a, as a just very specifically Southern story.
0: Yeah, and it's continuing... Um- following along on tracks laid down by lincoln which are really i'm just i'm just thinking about this A friend of the show michael Connolly, would point out this is like this is like whig ideology social cultural uh-huh. ideology mm-hmm. going way back i mean this is this is the like this is the fluffy part of the american system uh, which is mm-hmm. which is so old john c calhoun was once in favor of it um and mm-hmm. and it is the idea that i mean we people believed in the 1850s, some of them like religiously, that railroads would keep us from being disunited. That didn't, right? it didn't work out, but here we are.
1: It did not, it work, did
0: out. not work out. This is, <laughs> historians agree. Um, but here we are 1860, right. 1870, we're back to man. We got the transcontinental railroad and we're going to unite the nation. And we're yes. going to have common purpose with the railroad. It's all, it's all made the right. same things again. Um,
1: yeah. And the railroad and then also the telegraph, uh, you know, by that time, we had a, a transcontinental telegraph line as well, so information was moving really fast. Spe- people speed felt, light. right, um, you know, people felt much more connected. It didn't seem completely insane to people, you know, in California that they could learn about news in New York. Yeah, And it, 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 pretty
0: much, it. it is kind of crazy, and it would have changed the American Revolution. The idea that people in California can have senators or congressmen in Washington, and that's like mm-hmm. plausible. That can, okay. that can only happen with a telegraph and with newspaper and with mass printing, too, for that matter.
1: Um, well, and it happened. I think we lose sight of the fact that that happened really rapidly, oh, yeah. too, right? I mean, this yeah. is by the by the time Hayden's in Yellowstone, you know, California's representatives have been in Congress only for 20 years. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's uh, the amount of dynamic change in the country in that period is just... It's staggering. Amazing to contemplate.
0: It it is really staggering. So let's uh, talk about some of you have got a tripartite group. uh, You got triumvirate. We've mentioned uh, one of them a lot. So Ferdinand Hayden, who is he and why is the United States Geological Survey just so damn important in the the late 19th century? Yes.
1: So Hayden was one of the totally fascinating people I like to write about, very complicated in his motivations. Uh, He grows up poverty-stricken, child of divorce. His parents, though, realized how smart he was and managed to send him to Oberlin um, for a college education. And it was really there that he discovered his, his interest in geology. By 1853, he was going on fossil collecting trips, and he discovered that he had a real talent for fossil spotting. And you wouldn't think that this is, this is something you could be a genius at. Right. But apparently it's quite hard out oh, in sometimes. the field. Try
0: looking, yeah. try looking for arrowheads in a plowed field and That's or right. try walking like, with someone who can see them. And then you're right. And then you'll feel like a complete, you'll realize there's a talent that can be learned.
1: Right. Right. And he apparently, you know, was quite unusual in this talent he had for spotting really important fossil specimens, um, getting them out of, you know, whatever rock face or earth uh, they were embedded in intact and, you know, getting them back to scientists who could then analyze them. So uh, Hayden became really invested uh, in this practice in this job, he wanted a future in it. Uh, he wanted to become very well known and well respected in the scientific community. Uh, he was a little bit of an outlier because of his background, you know, science was the domain of of elite men for a long time in America. So he was kind of the scrappy upstart. He was also quite obnoxious, uh, very ambitious. he was a fast talker, he was a very good lobbyist uh, <laughs> For these reasons, he was a little bit craven. Um, but he was, you know, he was trying to build a life. He was trying to build a career at a moment where that was really kind of difficult for scientists. For most people, it was uh, more of a hobby. And this is why he needed to get a medical degree. Mm-hmm. Right? right. So, um, and that was the way that you actually uh, took advanced courses in science uh, during this period. So he did have an MD, but he was completely uninterested in actually.
0: Being he he did. He was a surgeon during the Civil War. Uh, he was. And there's the the Oberlin thing. There, there, there's the, that there's that it, that it's it's Oberlin in 1850. It's mm-hmm. I mean it's a hotbed of what will become radical Republicanism. So there's there's right. that ideolo- There's an ideological force to some of his his work as well.
1: Yes, and and he was uh you know he never really talked about politics at all, except in that he understood that a growing federal power would help him, Mm -hmm. right? Because the federal government uh, as part of this extension of their reach into the West was funding these surveys uh, starting in the 1850s uh, and kind of ramping up in the 1860s. And then, then the period right after the war and some of them were military surveys and and, you know, Hayden as a civilian was quite invested then in trying to create a space for himself to lead these surveys. He didn't just want to be a geologist kind of hanging out in a survey led by uh, a military officer. Mm -hmm. And so he began with the help of Spencer Baird at the Smithsonian to lobby Congress, to lead some civilian surveys uh, out in the West. And he was successful in that in the late 1860s and ultimately you know, became the the head of the Nebraska Geological Survey and had a couple competitors in the field, but was really kind of pulling ahead of them uh, in his success rate in getting money from Congress to fund the center. So
0: the United States Geological Survey, just to dwell on this, it's um, it's like the concentration of applied scientific knowledge in the federal government in like 1870,
1: right? That that. Uh, um, yes, although. Although what we know now uh, as the USGS was actually not formed until a little bit later. Uh, And Hayden ultimately lost out on leading that uh, new uh, government body uh, because for various reasons, um, and he he lost out to um, John Wesley Powell. John Wesley Powell. Yeah. yeah, and so and then ultimately Clarence King too, who he hated. Yeah. So he hated all of his rivals in the field. Three of the um, three of the most
0: interesting guys in like the West and science, yeah. you know, are all together though fighting for this this pl- yes. the plum of being the director of the USGS. That gives you an idea of yes. of its importance in Washington and in the West and then this project of yeah. uh, federal and, control.
1: Yes. And at this point in 1871, you know, Hayden was the head of his own survey. Powell had his, King had the 40th parallel. Uh, Wheeler, uh, you know, was out also in the West doing a survey. So they were all kind of dispersed and they had their own little kingdoms, Mm -hmm. their own survey kingdoms. And those ultimately got consolidated uh, in the late 1870s into the USGS. But at this point, Hayden was solely responsible For raising his own funding, so I, you know, I think scientists today will (laughs) feel for that because you know they're always having to apply for grants and and to keep their research running, and and this is the exact position he was in, and so he cultivated politicians. Uh, Republicans were more likely to support his efforts uh, because of their stance, and so. He, you know, became, I I wouldn't say friends, but maybe friendly with pretty powerful politicians like James Blaine and uh, Henry Dawes and people who could actually, you know, move the needle for him and getting him some funding in Congress. And he was successful.
0: Another character, which I guess I'd heard the name, uh, Mm -hmm. Jay Cook, who is equally fascinating another yes. another poor boy made good kind of
1: uh yeah i mean he was the son of a lawyer so no, he was great. sort of poor. he he was not that poor he he had a he had some advantages over over someone like hayden um but he also had his own genius uh he was very good at math he understood business and this led him as a teenager to kind of quit school and to start working as a clerk in a bank and by the Civil War, when he was, you know, in his kind of early late 30s, early 40s, he started his own investment bank called Jay Cook and Company. And he became quite famous and very, very rich during the war selling US war bonds to fund the war effort. Uh, so he would sell these bonds to regular people. Um, and he would take a, a cut of that uh, price. And so He made a ton of money. He built a huge house outside Philadelphia. He built a summer home on Gibraltar Island in Lake Erie. Uh, He's originally from Ohio, but ended up in, in Philadelphia. And after the Civil War, he too was kind of searching for a grand project, something that would make him feel patriotic like his his war bond selling had made him feel, uh, and also give him a project of great consequence. Mm -hmm. And so in 1870, he agreed to, to raise capital for the Northern Pacific Railroad, which was intended to be the second transcontinental line. It was called the Centennial Line. It was supposed to be finished by 1876 for the celebration of the nation's centennial. And uh, he got to work in 1870 trying to sell these bonds. And it was just a disaster um, because, you know, as we know, for the many historians of railroads and rail- railroad technology, railroads are an insane thing to try and invest in. Right. Um, they don't actually create value until they're finished, but you have to fund the construction. <laughs> and, and so you have to basically sell people. It's basically like dealing in futures. You really have no idea how it's actually going to go. And he just was not successful. Uh, he was trying to get Europeans to buy bonds. They wouldn't do it. Uh, and you know, regular people were not particularly jazzed about this line either, which was supposed to run from the Great Lakes to the Pacific coast. And About 50 miles north of Yellowstone. So this is how Jay Cooke gets involved. He's very interested in Hayden's expedition. He wants to know uh, what Hayden finds, and he wants to use that information to promote the sale of bonds and to promote the railroad and its possible future tourist traffic. And so he kind of signals to Hayden that he's supportive of this effort. He sends Thomas Moran, a Philadelphia painter, uh, to go join the expedition in the middle of July to bring back sketches and uh, visual images of Yellowstone that possibly Cook can use then to promote uh, the National... or the the Northern Public Railroad... the Northern Pacific Railroad. I'm like, National Public Radio? Um, But... uh, he and because one of one of Cook's other kind of elements of genius is that he was one of these early adopters of advertising and he understood PR he understood the power of visual images in creating uh, sort of emotional attachments to um, to things and to places and so he knew that visual images would be very helpful in all of his advertising for these bond sales so So he sent Thomas Moran, and when Hayden returned from Yellowstone, it was actually Cook's PR man, A.B. Nettleton, who wrote to Hayden and suggested to him that perhaps Hayden might want to lobby politicians to create Yellowstone as a national park. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's this whole story that gets, um, adopted along with the, the, the mythic story that native peoples were afraid of the geysers in Yellowstone, this mythic story of that, the origin of the, the park idea, uh, that it was, you know, local Montana boosters who were, you know, giving up, uh, their personal interest in this place for the people, uh, for the benefit of the people. But really it was, it was, uh, Cook's PR man. Uh, who had this great idea to save it as a national park that this might lure tourists. So he became involved also in the lobbying effort for Yellowstone Park, Yellowstone National Park as well.
0: And someone, a third person, probably the best known of them now, which is interesting, um, who is very also very interested in the Northern Pacific Railway, uh, but not in the way Jay Cook is, is Sitting Bull.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, the, known to his people as Tatanka Iotake. Uh, I don't speak, he I don't was speak the, I'm not going to try yes, that. Yes, <laughs> um, He So Sitting Bull became a leader of his people. He actually, he was the youngest of the three protagonists. He was the most prominent uh, of all three of them within his society at the time. And he also was kind of a son of the elite Mm -hmm. within Lakota culture. Uh, His uncle was a prominent war chief. So was his father. His mother uh, was from a very respected band. And so he was kind of born into power. Um, And by the time he was in his early twenties, was already uh, a leader within Lakota society. And uh, especially within his band, the Hunkpapa Lakota. So, and really from this moment on, He was defending his people, uh, their sovereignty and their land rights, especially in the 1860s when there was a gold strike in the Montana Rockies and miners started to take boats up the Missouri and try to cross Lakota land uh, to get to those gold mines. And the Papa Lakota were having none of that and Sitting Bull was having none of that. And so really from the mid-1860s onward, Uh, Sitting Bull kind of came into the American imaginary as someone important to know about, uh, someone the U.S. government was going to have to reckon with. And it's unclear if he knew about Hayden's expedition. His actions sort of shaped the expedition in some interesting ways. But uh, really, the survey teams he was most concerned about were the Northern Pacific survey teams that Jay Cook had sent to try and map uh, the route for uh, the tracks that would, that would move through Lakota territory and north of Yellowstone. Um, so he, yeah, he attacked, he, first he surveilled uh, and his people surveilled and then they attacked uh, Northern Pacific Railroad survey teams in 71, 72 and 73. And they were successful. They, you know, William, William Tecumseh Sherman, who's the general of the armies at this point, just said, you know, the, the Lakota are going to fight every foot of the line. And they did, and they successfully kind of pushed the the Northern Pacific off, and it did not ultimately get completed until 1883. It
0: took a different route too, didn't it? I mean, it goes much farther north than that 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 planned route. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It's a it's a Glacier Railroad now, as I remember, because I've been to Glacier, but not Yellowstone. But that's that that's sort of the Glacier Railroad, not the. Uh,
1: yeah. And then it does, it does kind of dip down and it does go over, you know, north of Yellowstone still. Uh, so that part of the track is, is still there, but yeah, they had to, to divert some energy, but, but, you know, they could only do that at that point because Sitting Bull after the battle of Greasy Grass or Little Bighorn uh, was forced northward and out of the country and into Canada. Right. That was the only reason they were able to, so, to actually.
0: Compete. let's, um, let's talk a little bit more about um, grant's policy because um, this is this is part of this story this is grant's Indian policy is a policy towards the indigenous people and um very briefly because you've mentioned this already that in 1871 Congress completely overturned that policy so what was that policy yes. how's it related to grants sort of reconstruction policy as well because that, that's right. that's a very interesting connection
1: yeah yeah I mean grant grant is sort of their They're the three main protagonists, and then there are a couple of kind of supporting players, and Grant is one of those. Uh, And his administration is very important. You know, he came into office in the election of 1868 with the campaign slogan, let us have peace. And by that, he meant let us have peace between Northerners and Southerners, but he also meant let us have peace between the U.S. and Native peoples. Uh, Andrew Johnson, in one of the only (laughs) sort of uh, kind of positive future looking moves of his entire administration actually put together a peace commission and sent them out. Mm -hmm. I know, I know. Uh, Sent sent a a commission to the West to try and negotiate peace treaties uh, in advance of the transcontinental railroad uh, construction, which everyone knew was going to bring just like huge amounts of white migration into the West. So at that point, you know, there had been an established system in which um, federal officials would sit down with indigenous leaders, and they would hammer out peace treaties that usually involved. Um, I mean, the U.S. government wanted indigenous peoples to remove to reservations where they could be contained and surveilled, uh, and kind of moved out of the way of major white emigrant pathways. Uh, the Oregon Trail, the Transcon, what would become the Transcontinental Railroad, uh, Santa Fe Trail, um, all of these places, and they wanted peace, and what that meant was for Indigenous people to live on reservations and to give up uh, their warfare and their raiding and to become "quote unquote" civilized by giving up everything that made them, you know, right. Indigenous. What wh- and-
0: what uh, what reservations are at that time is still highly up for grabs though, right? Because there's, you you mentioned one plan, Grant has some kind of plan to create a state or a couple states,
1: right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this this is what was interesting about Grant, is that initially, at least, he was Pretty open to new kinds of ideas. And he appointed Ely Parker to be the Commissioner of Indian Affairs. Uh, Civil War historians will know him uh, because he was a clerk for Grant uh, during the Civil War and he was present and wrote out the surrender agreement uh, between Grant and Lee. So there is the famous story, uh, which is probably apocryphal, you know, that, that at that moment, as Ely Parker, who was Seneca, was. Writing these out, Lee kind of looked at him with surprise, like, why are you here? And Dealey Parker said, We are all Americans. Mm. Right. So, so that story is probably made up, but uh, that's how you would probably know him. But he was uh, a commissioner of Indian Affairs and he had, he was also on board with the idea of Native people living on reservations. He thought that was the only way that they could survive. Um, but his idea was to concentrate indigenous peoples in a couple of different areas like Indian territory, and then actually treat those places like territories. Mm -hmm. And they would have representation in Congress. Once they reached a certain population, they could write a constitution and apply uh, for entrance into the union. So that indigenous polities would actually have representation in Congress as their own states. Grant thought this was an interesting idea and they tried to pursue it, uh, but there was a lot of resistance uh, to that in Congress. And ultimately, a coalition of of politicians and also civic leaders pushed Ely Parker out of the administration. Uh, Grant accepted his resignation in the summer of 1871. And really from that point on, without someone to kind of push him in that direction, Grant reverted uh, to his military mode and basically embraced the idea of, you know, peaceful agreements and reservations, but also was much more willing to take the violent, you know, kind of U.S. military campaign route to quell native resistance.
0: So let's get back to Yellowstone and to the expedition. How did the, um, you you said earlier that Sitting Bull influences the direction of the expedition. So how how does he do that? I'm I'm curious to have you talk about
1: that a little bit. Well, yeah sure well, well, one reason he did is that his continued resistance to anyone trespassing across uh, Lakota country really helped uh, Hayden make the decision to take the transcontinental all the way to Ogden, Utah and then move north along a wagon road uh, which itself was a little bit dicey because there were bandits operating along that uh, that section of the country uh, and then to come around uh, the northern side and and enter. Um, you know, go through Bozeman and enter through uh, the northern entrance at Gardner. And he could have come over from the Missouri and through Lakota country. Uh, It was about 50 miles longer, that route, Um, but that was a possibility. But he chose the other route for a number of different reasons, but um, partially because then he wouldn't have to uh, deal with uh, any kind of potential uh, resistance from Sitting Bull and his people. Uh, also, while they were in Yellowstone, uh, as he was exploring around, they received news that there had been a raid in the Gallatin Valley, which is where Bozeman is north of, of Yellowstone. And uh, these were Lakota raiders who Sitting Bull had actually sent to investigate whether there was going to be a Northern Pacific Railroad survey coming. And, um, you know, they looked around. They didn't find a survey team, but they did find a lot of horses. And they they brought those horses back with them um, and killed a few Uh, Montana citizens. And this created a huge uproar. And what it meant was that Hayden lost half of his second cavalry escort kind of at this moment in the the expedition. He accelerated his plans to study the Geyser Basin, uh, changed those so that he could get that done and uh, really get out of there maybe even a little earlier than he had already planned. Uh, Because what he didn't want is for Lakota raiders to come into Yellowstone, take all his horses, and then they would be trapped uh, in there with the winter season coming on in the first 2 weeks of September uh, because the one of Hayden's challenges was that at, that the exploration season and now the tourist season in Yellowstone is very short. Hmm. You can really only go there between kind of mid May and early September and then they close yeah, the roads are closed. Like and and it was actually quite dangerous. And they if they were left without any kind of transportation in Yellowstone, and they were caught there during a snowstorm, it was very possible that they would have died. And that's because so, that's because
0: it's the the basin is high up, and then it, it's and it, very it it's high. a basin and surrounded by mountains.
1: Yes, it- yes, and so even when you that's what's kind of wild when you drive in there. You know, you enter the, the the boundary of the park and talk to the lovely park rangers and then you go, you drive up and you drive up over those mountains and then you come into the basin and you think it's, oh, it's a basin, it must be low, but it's the average elevation is 8,000 wow. feet in Yellowstone or thereabouts. So you are very high. Uh, and so, you know, when I was there in September, we were there in the kind of second week and we got snowed on. Uh-huh. Um, during, yeah, (laughs) during our, our explorations, but, you know, we had a nice vehicle with heated (laughs) seats. So that was, you know, we did not have the concerns that the Hayden expedition had. Um, But yeah, so, so sitting bulls actions, even though they were not, you know, directly related, really reverberated throughout the great Northwest. And, and this is what you find in this period in the West is that single people uh, can take actions that have that kind of consequence mm-hmm. across a very large length, large landscape.
0: Um, speaking of actions and consequences, let's talk about Thomas Moran. There's lots we could talk about uh, with the, yes. the expedition, but I'm fascinated with the, the art side of this and the art history side of it. Yes. Uh, because Moran, as you argue, kind of starts to create Yellowstone National Park even before it is created. He's imagining it as we imagine it now, he's created our Imaginarium of Yellowstone. Yes. How does he do that?
1: Yes, yes. Um, well, I, I should say that I first kind of studied the Hayden Expedition in an art history class in grad school uh, because of the photographs of William Henry Jackson and the the paintings of Thomas Moran and the sketches of Henry Elliott. And um, what Hayden was, you know, he was good at a lot of things. Um, he also basically... I'm not sure he invented the genre of popular science writing, but he was definitely one of the first people uh, to really write about science for a public audience uh, in, you know, this kind of very middle-class kind of magazine type of world. Um, But he also knew that visual images were incredibly important to conveying, well, for two reasons. One, they were proof that they had actually been there and proof that these features actually existed, right? I mean, nowadays, we're like, photographs lie all the time, right? Just look at Instagram for for proof of that. Um, we can manipulate them, we can show whatever we want to show. But in this moment, Americans really still believe that, that photographs were truth, right? They were truthful renderings of people and places. And so uh, he, Hayden had met uh, William Henry Jackson and knew about his photographic work for a couple of years before he hired him onto his survey teams. So he knew that he was going to come with him, and then of course Thomas Moran shows up, <clears throat> courtesy of Jay Cook, and the two of them kind of became messmates and they traveled together. And Moran would often pose for William Henry Jackson. Um, sometimes I look at these photos, and you know he sent William Henry Jackson sent Thomas Moran out onto. Uh, Mammoth Hot Springs. Like he is standing on the feature, so that you know William Henry Jackson can take this great photograph showing you the scale of this amazing. Like, and I'm like, he could have died. Like, he could have fallen in, been scalded. He could have broken through the surface. I can't even believe he did that. But uh, all along the way, Thomas Moran was was making sketches. He was most enamored of the lower falls of the Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone and the view that. That you could achieve of that along the rim, and that's the view he kind of latched onto. And th- and this itself is also very interesting, right? Yes. Because Yellowstone is most unique for its geothermal mm-hmm. features, and certainly Moran did paint a lot of those. Um, but it was the his Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone picture that really captured his imagination and the imagination of Congress and Americans.
0: So I know zero about him, but I, I, the, the picture for this episode will probably be rainbows over the grand Canyon at the Yellowstone. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's interesting the way he's playing around. Um, he's like coming to his own impressionism um, with that, mm-hmm. with that one. I mean, and he's also kind of breaking apart the material space and reordering it a little bit. So it's not, He's not a Bierstadt. He's not, he's different than I thought he would be. He's not a, he's not sort of a photorealist kind of person. So I think that, I think that's part of, I, I, I think Moran's his novelty and interest perhaps also makes people interested in what he's, what he's painting. Um, Yeah. But
1: yeah, I mean, he is painting in a very traditional American landscape style. I mean, the fact that you. It's been going on for 50
0: years by this time. Yeah. Oh
1: yeah. 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 And it, you know, Yeah. And the Hudson, uh, yeah, the Hudson Valley school. And then the, you know, they're, they're looking at paintings from Europe, Mm -hmm. you know, as that first kind of idea, Claude Lorraine, et cetera. Um, you know, you're up on a prospect, you're looking over a view, it's expansive in the foreground. There's a lovely kind of middle ground line. There's a waterfall to draw your attention into the background. Um, and this, you know, lovely, uh, kind of canyon view that is, that is coming down on either side. And, but you're right. I mean, his style is, it's not beer and it's not photographic. It is a little bit chunkier. I'm sure the artists will love that (sighs) term that I just used. Um, but what, uh, what critics and, and people who, you know, just kind of regular people who saw the painting in person responded to also was the color i mean thomas moran is an amazing colorist he managed he managed to capture the kind of golden light uh, of the canyon and it is just a gorgeous painting it is also enormous it is 12 feet by 8 feet uh you know this was a tradition of a lot of the big landscape painters was to actually create uh big pictures and 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 thomas moran called his The big picture. And he knew it was something special. And everyone who came to look at it, including uh, William Henry Jackson and uh, Hayden and the Northern Pacific Railroad people, they all came to look at it before it was displayed in May of 1872. And just they knew because he's uh, that it was just
0: this takes us back to burke and the sublime but he's trying to convey the yes. the, the feeling of seeing it and which is what interesting to see their reactions to it they're all, they're not saying hey this looks exactly like it they're saying this is exactly how i felt you know right looking at it.
1: yeah and it was meant to evoke that it was meant to provoke an emotional reaction mm-hmm. for you to actually see this painting and be like oh wow that is gorgeous. Right. And to, to have that kind of response. And when you go in person, you have a similar response. And actually at the, the overlook uh, where Moran paint, you know, kind of did the sketches to then create this picture. They have a whole marker that shows you the painting and shows you his perspective. So the park knows how important Moran's painting was in shaping ideas about Yellowstone uh, after the expedition returned. And then after they passed the the Yellowstone Act and, and Moran was able to sell this picture to Congress for $10,000, which was cool. unheard of at of the money. time. And it, yeah, it was the first time that, that Congress had, had bought a painting like that outright. They had commissioned a lot of other paintings. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he actually went and lobbied some of the same people that Hayden was lobbying for the, to pass the Yellowstone Act, um, lobbied them, to pressure the you know the library committee uh, to to give you know uh, get enough money to pay him for this painting and and it also he was rather pleased because he was a, a painter kind of on the rise mm-hmm. um, he was not yet super famous uh, but that price matched the price that Frederick Edwin Church had gotten for the Niagara painting which was a very famous painting kind of at this point in time so i think i think moran was like very happy to have matched
0: that. he's matched the number of the celebrity artist of the moment in the united states right yeah um it's uh and this by the way in some sense moran's success even to people he's especially successful because no one's heard of him and yet this boys and girls are why Germans rent recreational vehicles in the American West in some way. There's, it, he's created this, he created an image of the sublime West, um, uh, where you can have deep emotional connections with nature, uh, which to this day means people come from around the world to rent a car or a RV and, and travel and see it so they can have that okay. and they can have that sublime experience. It's yes, not a human experience. Absolutely. I mean, it's not a there are no humans in this picture. Uh, that, that well, there that,
1: are there are a couple of
0: that humans. invites you to but it invites then you to become yeah. part of it. It's like in the in right, this exactly. in this empty land, which is not empty.
1: Yeah. And and you were meant and you know, Moran uh inserted William Henry Jackson and himself and Hayden into this image. He also made up a figure entirely. Uh a a native person, it's unclear uh, what nation he is supposed to represent, but he is standing out on the promontory with Hayden kind of showing him the way and this, and showing him the view. And this is, um, this, you know, was very common oh, yeah. in American landscape that's, painting that's to, to have. Back it.
0: to Asher Durand and kindred yeah. spirits. Yeah. I mean, the kind
1: of- Exactly, yeah. And it's the, it's the quote unquote vanishing Indian mm-hmm. uh, image where here is a native person who's meant to convey, this actually is wilderness. Mm-hmm um and it is now yours because i'm going to show it to you and then
0: I'm well be well i mean we can all link to the picture of the oxbow where you have the the picture of the uh, one side of the of the connecticut river is farmland and one size wilderness and there's mm-hmm. a, a i think a shield and a spear and stuff like that this is old stuff mm-hmm. um right. so did sitting bull cause the ruin of jay cook's bank that's what i wanted,
1: wanted to ask you i you, i you think he was to, one you're, of, you're, of the he, factors Yes, yeah. I mean, I think he's one of the factors, and I think it, that is unacknowledged mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of the the work that we have about the panic and depression of 1873. Um, you know, most of the discussion has been, well, his railroad failed, and therefore Jay Cook failed, and then everyone failed. Um,
0: his railroad failed for a particular yes. reason, because
1: yes, if yes. it's a
0: if it's a futures market, Sitting Bull is making the future look really bad. Yes. It's, it doesn't take
1: much. He was not able... Yeah, and he was not able to progress the track west of the Missouri River, and he was not able to do that because Sitting Bull was there preventing it. And so that delay, of course, does not give investors the kind of confidence they need to invest in the Northern Pacific. And so there was that. There was also the problem, you know, that Jay Cook was just fully emotionally invested in the Northern Pacific. He had lost his wife, Libby, kind of right in the in the summer of 1871. He was, um, you know, so he was in mourning. He was throwing himself into his work. He was super obsessed with it, and he started to loan the Northern Pacific money from his own investment bank. Right, so no
0: developer should do that. To, that's the, that's against rule no. number one don't don't lend huge your huge
1: disaster yeah. yeah because then you know everything came to a head in September of 1873 people came calling um, you know to get their money out of Jacob and company and he had given two million of it to the northern Pacific where it had just disappeared right so he didn't have the money uh, to pay them and had to close his bank at around noon, uh, eleven o'clock noon um, on on that September day in eighteen seventy three, and that just caused there had already been some instability in the market, so there were those forces also in play. But the announcement that J. Cook and Company was closing was catastrophic, and it really launched the the panic and depression of eighteen seventy three. So, uh, I, what what
0: should we talk about that we haven't talked about? Uh, it's an, a new question I'm trying to ask people. Uh, so, so, is there any, is there anything that you wish that we had uh, brought up so far? I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to ask that. Now you're, I, I, I don't I don't ever want to be asked that when I'm talking about my book. But I mean, is there like one anecdote or person or incident that we should that you feel passionately about making Kate Nelson and that you want to say what cocktails did Jay Cook drink? That's what that's what I wanted to know. Oh
1: right. <laughs> or, or what? Well no I mean I'm not sure he well I don't
0: know uh, I Jake don't know Drake, he actually.
1: I, he was a very religious he
0: was man. I mean he has to be the last Sturm und Drang Episcopalian I ever heard of. I mean he was <laughs> he was a very ardent episcopalian but uh, I mean and, and other things. He was a passionate yeah. guy. He's a very I have to say I heard the name, but I knew nothing about him. I didn't know he was from Philadelphia, which makes him good, of course for me. but <laughs> but uh, or Ohio, but it's just it's a very interesting character. I mean, I knew it's very interesting to me how much more I knew about Sitting Bowl than I knew about Jay Cook.
1: Right, right. Well, I mean, I think we haven't talked as much about the Grant Admission Grant administration's efforts in the South yeah, and how we should, those were related. How, and because that's a let's very,
0: close out with that, because that's that's a big that's a yeah. big part of your argument here, huh?
1: It is, and it's a it's a really interesting story because I think we have this moment in seventy-one, seventy-two, you know, I think a lot of people pay attention in reconstruction history to 76, right? Like that's the most important year. But the I think this is such an interesting moment because the Grant administration actually acts against the KKK. They actually, Congress passes uh, laws that enable Grant to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. Uh, The Department of Justice is created in 1870. uh, And uh, Amos Ackerman, who is Grant's appointee as attorney general, really spearheads this uh, campaign to prosecute KKK members in the South. And... This is. I saw this as a really important moment. I think a lot of people might be like, "How is that actually related?" But it's related through this federal effort to to really reach for this higher ideal, right? To provide for the people, to protect the rights of the people where they are being taken away uh, or infringed upon um, through acts of violence or through state inaction. Uh, And they're, they're really kind of striving for that, you know, the promise that is made in the Declaration of Independence and in the, the 14th and 15th Amendments. And, and they're also in Yellowstone, making this move to give something to the people that is not about taxes. And it's not about, you know, developing land. It's, it's about the benefit and enjoyment of a place. Which is just, I think, a really important moment that we need to recognize. Um, You know, the pretty soon thereafter, by 1873, in fact, um, the Grant administration has really abandoned this effort in the South. Uh, They continue the effort in the West, um, particularly in their escalating campaigns against Native people. So it's really a bright and shiny, it's like a brief shining moment, right? Where we see how we could use federal power for good. Uh, You know, in some ways it always has costs. Uh, And of course the use of federal power and the creation of a place like Yellowstone has consequences for native peoples that, that Republicans and pretty much all Americans at the time ignored, but this was an unprecedented effort, and we wouldn't see anything like it again, especially in the protection of civil rights um, on the federal level for a hundred years.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, that's, that opens up another hour of conversation, which we need to avoid in I know, the interest I know, of the know, podcast <laughs> uh, and the, what we, the, the, the compact we have made with our listeners. Um, yes. Uh, so, because you're like you, you actually. I Met you through Jane Simonson, so I I know that I know that you have a, you have yeah. a deep si- secret that you're like an American Studies person, so you weren't taught to write badly. So. <laughs> That wasn't part of your training, necessarily. Um, <laughs> you read literature and stuff. Um, so you're, like, playing around with metaphors. I, I saw what you were doing. You're playing around with metaphors in this, like, history book. And so there's, yes. a, there's a playing around with Yellowstone as a metaphor for American history. So let's let's close out with that. Even as, as I alluded to at the beginning, Yellowstone is a bubbling, hot mess of magma, which... You know there are people you've probably met them I've never been to Yellowstone they like haunt the place because they're obsessed with the super volcano that can literally kill us all maybe
1: Oh absolutely yeah. Oh yeah you no. Can explain it that would, it it, would yeah it would like pretty definitively yes Um yeah I mean as I was reaching, researching the book I was coming to understand that Yellowstone you know was a place but also in this moment it was really symbolic or emblematic of what the nation was at the moment right it was both beautiful and terrible right both fragile and powerful uh, and I think it resonated with people because they saw as in their own society that while everything may look uh, kind of placid or you know sort of in control nothing look placid nothing story.
0: looked placid in 1871
1: uh, yeah okay, uh, yeah on. well that's true but it might it might look, like it was under control, at maybe least, in twenty fifteen. On the surface, or like
0: that. but go on. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, but there was always something. There were always forces under yeah. the surface that were ready to explode. Right. Sounds um, like human history. So that, yeah, exactly. And so that I, I was seeing that uh, in my research, and then I also end with that uh, image in the book that uh, Yellowstone really is symbolizing this this contrast, like sort of what this strange country <laughs> actually embodies uh, and something. And I think that's something that we have to recognize. I mean, this is, this is why we need to study and write about and research, you know, what is now kind of being known as hard history, just because the country, this is what the country is. Yeah. It is both wonderful and it is also terrifying.
0: And all, of, as I said, and really, when you get down to it, all of human history is like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Denmark doesn't have guys. Geis- well, actually, Denmark used to have Iceland. So, um, yeah. but, you know, That's uh, right. Den- That's Denmark right. did have the Vikings. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone has everyone has these hard histories, which only can be you can only appreciate all the past by you can only comprehend a part of the past by appreciating all of the past. I would, I would imagine. Right. I like that because it goes so well with what you were just saying of uh, earlier about Ferdinand Hayden seeing Yellowstone as the heart of the continent. Right. Yes.
1: Yeah. And I like that too. That that's that's really and that was an alternative title for the book. Was the heart? Of it's a
0: good one. It's a good one. I can see that publishers have no sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, my guest today has been Megan Kate Nelson. She's author of a book which is now called. Saving Yellowstone, Exploration and Preservation and Reconstruction in America. Megan, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking again.
1: Thanks so much for having me back. This was great.
0: Just a brief reminder. If you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavon, PodChaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.